This is Dave Green at East Line Studio, where we produce the Historians podcast. Bob Cudmore will have the latest edition of the Historians in just a few seconds. The Historians podcast depends on your donations to continue. You may donate online at GoFundMe.com slash The Historians, or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historians is also heard on RISE. WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled, WMHT.org, and on SoundCloud, search East Line Studio. And now, on with the show. On the Historians today, it's a pleasure to welcome Bill Buell. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing fine, Bob. How are you? Good. Bill Buell is a reporter for the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, also the author of history books on Schenectady and Albany. And let's start with a a book that you're working on about Schenectady's socialist mayor, George Lunn. Uh, Actually, we did uh, discuss Mr. Lunn a bit when you were last on uh, The Historians, but uh, refresh our memory. Who is is this man who was a socialist, who was elected uh, mayor of Schenectady? He was a Reformed minister at the uh, Reformed Church in the Stockade section of Schenectady from 1904 to 1909, and he kind of gets pushed out by the uh, consistory, the governing body of the church, and gets into politics, and in November of 1911, he's elected uh, mayor of Schenectady as a socialist. Um, He had been a Republican, but then... uh, he didn't feel they were, uh, I don't know, progressive enough. So right. he became a socialist, wins the election as a mayor for two years. By 1913, by the fall of 1913, the Republicans and the Democrats had formed uh, uh, a fusion ticket. Um, a guy by the name of uh, Schoolcraft runs, and uh, he beats Lund in 1913. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Democrats and the Republicans couldn't keep it together for very long. So in 1915, Lund runs again as a socialist and, and wins. Uh, but soon uh, after his uh, term starts in January of 1916, he becomes a Democrat because of uh, all the problems within the socialist local in Schenectady. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he becomes a Democrat and, and in 1917 runs for U.S. Congress as a Democrat and wins, and then uh, eventually comes back to Schenectady and serves two more terms as mayor as a Democrat. And then he does go on to become lieutenant governor under Al Smith, our first Catholic governor. Mm -hmm. And then, um, let's say, Smith appoints him to the Public Service Commission. Uh, So he heads that for like 15, maybe even 20 years, and then he dies in 1948 out in California at the age of 75. you know why he went to California? He married, uh, his first wife died. Uh, I believe she had a heart attack somewhere around 1930. And he was a very popular guy, very good-looking man. Um, so uh, he didn't have any trouble finding a rich widow. I see. Um, he, and she was from California. So they married, and he ended up going out there, although he still had a uh, camp in Vermont that he came back to during the summers, and he also had uh, some of his kids were still in Schenectady throughout uh, World War II, that era. 
In fact, maybe I'm off base on this, but I seem to recall that you've been in touch with members, uh, his descendants, members of the family. I just actually met uh, uh, his daughter-in-law about six or seven years ago, Maxine Lund. She married his youngest son, Mm -hmm. uh, Raymond Lund. And unfortunately, Maxine passed away two or three years ago now. Mm. Uh, But she was a great lady. I had uh, two long sit-down chats with her. Um, used her uh, as a source in a couple of stories for the Gazette I did. And mm. um, and I met another woman who is, uh, was like the granddaughter of uh, Lund's brother, one of his younger brothers, something like that, kind of a distant relative. Mm-hmm. What, what so, do you see as the significance of, of Lund running and winning as a socialist, you know, eventually going to back to one of the major uh, parties? I mean... Did he have great accomplishments as mayor or or not? He did. He created Central Park, a whole park system uh, for the children and the people of the the city. Um, He built new schools along with Charles Steinmetz, the wizard of uh, Schenectady, a popular scientist, electrical engineer Mm -hmm. at GE who had a strong civic sense of duty. And he also was a socialist, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, Steinmetz was. uh, He uh, immigrated from Poland or what is now Germany, or what is what was Germany, what was now Poland, I'm not sure. But uh, he had been a socialist while in Europe, but then he's very quiet politically for a 10 or 15 year stretch. And then when Lund is elected in um, 1911, Steinmetz all of a sudden is another, uh, once again, an active socialist and offers to do anything he can to help the local socialist that's connected. What did GE management think of that, I wonder? One of their star scientists? Uh, prof- well, you get a lot of mixed messages. Um, the president of GE at the time, who I believe was a guy by the name of Coffin, actually was pro-Lun, which was kind of unusual because Lun had been uh, attacking all the uh, elites of Schenectady, and this would include, you know, presidents and vice presidents of GE and and American Locomotive Company. So um, he was a very progressive man. Uh, you wouldn't think that him and, and Coffin would have much in common. But uh, after he wins, Coffin says something to the effect that he is the right man for the job at this time, words to that uh, effect. So he actually supported one. Now, maybe he may, he may have felt a bit differently in, in private. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lund was such a popular guy and such a likable guy, he uh, he got a lot of people to go his way. And you say he had trouble with the Socialist Party, or I mean the uh, the other members of the Socialist Party? Right. The night, uh, the election night, or the, uh, I'm sorry, it would have been the eve of election, um, Lund got two visitors uh, at his front door around 11 o'clock at night. It was Charles Noonan and Russell Hunt who were the two leaders of the local Schenectady Socialist Party. They presented him with the uh, paper, uh, which was basically his resignation. Uh, They told him to sign it. Um, He put up a squabble and they argued. Uh, eventually he signed it because he didn't want to cause any uh, major problem. But basically what they were doing was telling him that if you do anything the party doesn't like, uh, we have uh, you know we have your resignation here and we can use it whenever. So the Socialist Party uh, 
um, at least the local here in Schenectady, and I assume it was uh, this way all over the country. Uh, they're, you know, very rigid men who went by the book, went by the socialist book. Um, so that was the beginning of uh, an ongoing uh, feud, not really a feud, but, you know, a string of disagreements over appointments. Lund would appoint a Democrat uh, as the park chairman or mm -hmm. a Republican as his uh, assistant counsel. And the Socialist Party, you know, said, you know, only appoint socialists. Hmm. And Lund's retort was, I am, I am not, uh, you know, I wasn't elected by the socialists. I was elected by the people of Schenectady, and that's who I answer to. Hmm. So they had a running battle throughout his two or four years. And eventually, um, in 1915, those, those two guys showed up again in 1913, and he shooed them away. And then they, I don't know if they showed up in 1915 to get him to sign, but he didn't, as he, he didn't sign in 1913 either. Hmm. So it was just a lot of disunion. Um, they didn't, those, these people didn't have a sense of humor, I don't think. <laughs> um, they didn't, they didn't just, didn't, they didn't get along too well, and so eventually he made his break. But he was also about to be thrown out of the party. Hmm. Uh, George Lunn, uh, the mayor of Schenectady, when do you think the book will be out? Well, uh, the light is at the end of the tunnel. Um, uh, I'm, I'm getting close to being done with the actual writing of the book. But then, as you know, there's quite a process after I hand in the manuscript. Hmm. So, you know, maybe late this year, maybe early next year, somewhere around there. But the, the good news is that I'm pretty much done with the book. Uh, for the most part. And I'm, I am focusing on the year 1912, but I'm also going to like use the last chapter to summarize the rest of his life and what happens to him after that. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Bill Buell, feature writer for the Daily Gazette, also author of uh, books of history of uh, Schenectady and uh, Albany County. Uh, a little sidelighter, you know, maybe a little uh, detour, but related to what you've been talking about. It seems there's been a, a fair amount of attention uh, being paid to the history of General Electric. I, I know that I've interviewed a couple of people, and I believe you have as as well for the uh, Gazette, people writing um, accounts of GE history and, and, and the historical societies having people speak. Um, at the time, Lund was a mayor, if I if I understand this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, GE's headquarters was Schenectady, and then this other you know some decades later, this uh, GE president comes along who basically decentralizes the company and and takes that important place away from Schenectady. Yeah, that was a large part of uh, Lisa Cannonberg's talk uh, this past Saturday at the society. She spoke about GE and the post-World War II era, the 50s and the 60s, and talked about um, President Ralph Cordner, who uh, did some things that were that went over very well with the company's bottom line, but as far as the uh, employees in Schenectady, you know, they started cutting back, the headquarters moved, and they laid off jobs, and 
you know, now we're down to 5,000 or whatever, when at one point it was up to 35, 40,000 employees, I think. Mm. So he made all the right moves for the uh, stockholders, I guess you could say, but not for the uh, city of Schenectady. That's what I got from her talk. Mm -hmm. Another um, series of stories that have been out recently uh, in connection with our local area and in history has, has to do with the observance of the anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I think you've written about this, and you were uh, telling me that a Union College has an exhibit on mm-hmm. uh, Union College uh, people and the Civil War. Yep, they have a wonderful exhibit. Um, it's about the Civil War. Uh, we There were a lot of Union um, College students who became officers and, and joined the uh, Union Army. There were a few who went down south, went back down home, down south, and joined the Confederate Army. The uh, Secretary of State was William Seward, a Union College graduate. That was for the Union, of course. And the Secretary of State of the Confederacy was a guy by the name of Robert Toombs, who was from Georgia, I believe, but he was also a Union College grad. Mm. So there are uh, a lot of Union College connections. Uh, and one of the main ones that they uh, mention at the exhibit is Major Henry Rathbone, who was an Albany native, who went to Union College. And then he is the guy in the presidential box with Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln and his fiance when Booth comes in and uh, shoots Lincoln in the back of the head. Um, Rathbone tries to stop him. He gets sniped by Booth, and then Booth jumps to the stage and uh, takes off. Um, also in the audience that night was uh, a guy by the name of Charles Lewis, who was a, a junior or maybe a sophomore at Union in 1862. He joins the Army, becomes an officer in the Union Army, and um, starts keeping a diary after he's wounded at uh, Chancellorsville, I want to say. Mm-hmm. But then uh, he is at Ford's Theater that night of the uh, Lincoln assassination, and he writes wonderfully in his diary about the, the events he saw and his fondness for Lincoln, uh, that sort of thing. And that we have a little exhibit uh, on that, his diary, and a few passages from his diary. That's out at the Maybe Farm, which is owned and operated by the Schenectady County Historical Society. Mm. So there's a lot going on. Um, that day was April 25th. Mm-hmm. 1865, when the Lincoln funeral train actually rolled through Schenectady. It didn't uh, stop, it just kind of slowed down and then continued west. It had stopped the previous day in Albany, and they had a parade and a service and that sort of thing. Yeah. But it just kind of slowed down in Schenectady on its way west to um, Springfield, Illinois. Yeah, and, um, you know, because I write about the Amsterdam area quite a lot, it slowed down there too, but didn't stop. <laughs> But I mean, but it had a big impact. I know the uh, the newspapers up in Amsterdam, and there were more than one then. Um, mm-hmm. You you know covered the uh, the story quite extensively. Yes, Connectedy, the downtown area is Connectedy was just filled with people and soldiers standing at attention as the uh, the funeral train rolled by. So it seems like a particularly moving image. That's for sure. And another. Um, part well, I mean, it's a it's something relatively modern, but it's now linked to the Civil War. You just did a, a piece in the a paper, an interview with musician Jay Ungar. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- t- tell us who he is. 
he's um, he was born in the Bronx. Uh, he he's been in the Hudson Valley uh, pretty much for 20, 30 years. He's a folk musician. Uh, he was a pretty successful musician way back in the, in the 1980s. Um, but in, uh, let's see, I want to get my years. Somewhere in 1982, I think it was, he wrote uh, Ashokan Farewell, which in 1990 basically becomes the theme song for Ken Burns' PBS documentary, The Civil War, which you know was seen by 40 million Americans, uh, some number like that. And it's a very uh, woeful, mournful lament, uh, really catchy. It really captured the imagination of of uh, Americans across the country. It was one of the reasons why the documentary was so well received, and it's played uh, perhaps too much, but it's played throughout <laughs> the whole uh, twelve hours or fourteen yeah. hours, whatever it was. Yeah, I think they they said, uh, or maybe your story said, how many times it it played in the. In that documentary, which of course went on over a number of nights, right? And he um, he got a lot of uh, attention because of it. Um, you know, so now he goes to a lot of reenactments. Uh, I mean, he's, he's very popular among uh, folk music fans, but he's also very popular among history buffs and reenactors. They were down at South Carolina for the 150th commemoration of. Uh, the raising of the Union flag again after the end of the Civil War. And I hope you didn't just say that, and I, it went over my head as it often does, but uh, I mean, he wrote it after he, I mean, he wrote, he wanted to write a mournful song, which is what right. it was, and it was had something to do with a, a camp he had Yeah, he has up. a fiddle camp and mm-hmm. a dance camp. Uh, him and his wife, Molly Mason, we should mention her too. Um, they're, they have a very popular, I don't know, it might be two or three week uh, camp in the Catskills um, where they uh, uh, have a lot of people come in, you know, spend a week, learn how to play the violin, the fiddle, uh, learn some dances. It's uh, I think it's like two separate camps. But um, Molly was telling me about how um, when they, after his popularity, after the Civil War series, they got all these reenactors showing up you know, wanting to learn authentic Civil War tunes and that sort of thing. And she said, she said, painfully it was aware that the Northern reenactors didn't get along with the Southern reenactors. So they ended up having to have a separate week. One week they'd have the Northern reenactors, and then the next week they'd have the uh, Southern reenactors. Really? Because well, I guess some of them were still pretty <laughs> serious about the yeah, Civil War. Yeah, well... If I, I mean, I, I became aware of that, and I'm tr- hoping this will all come back to me, but one of the battles where the Montgomery County Regiment, or a regiment, I think it was the 115th, um, raised in Fonda, New York, uh-huh. uh, participated was the Battle of a Lusty Florida. It's not a well-documented, or it's not as well-documented as other campaigns in the Civil War, sort of a side war almost, mm-hmm. and probably a poor decision on the part of the Union. They thought they could capture Florida, and they couldn't, or they didn't. So there was this big battle, which the Confederates won in the Lusty. And there's been this controversy about uh, putting the, I think, uh, making reference to the Union dead in the memorial there. I guess there's a saying in Florida, see, this is northern Florida, the farther north you go, the more south you go. Uh, isn't that right? Yeah, <laughs> and, that's funny. Well, anyway, so that, that's been a, an issue up there, that they were, they were trying to have some kind of a rapprochement between the 
the Union and uh, Confederate descendants, and it, it was at the very least it was it was difficult. I mean, they right. uh, the con, uh, the people down in, who built the monuments and so forth make reference to the uh, the Union dead, but they didn't. You know, they wanted to I don't know, have more on the on the Confederacy. But in terms of Jay Ungar, I, I hate to I don't mean to be un, I don't want to be unkind because I'm a no hit wonder. But in the old radio biz, we talk about one hit wonders. Was that true for Jay? I mean, he's not had another tune like that that's uh, yeah. kind of taken. Well, off. you know, he won a Grammy for that for the soundtrack to the Civil War series, um, and uh, they were nominated for an Emmy. Um, so, I mean, that's the only music that he's. Uh, done or written himself that, you know, received that kind of popularity. But, you know, he's a folk uh, musician. They do folk songs. Um, it's not, uh, you know, a top 40 situation where you sure. can sell 100,000 <laughs> no. records or a million records. Uh, people go listen to him because uh, they love folk music, and uh, he knows how to play the fiddle. I can uh, attest to that. Yeah, a, a, a great uh, player. And as you, as you say, it, it's, it was, uh, I think, even... From his point of view, it was probably an anomaly. I mean, it was, yes, yeah. he thought it would have some interest, you know, and be something to say, but it, it just really caught on. It, it uh, kind of spoke to, uh, even though it wasn't, quote-unquote, authentic, it wasn't from the Civil War period, it, right. it did seem to symbolize that era. Yeah, he said he had people suggesting that uh, that he stole it from somewhere because it just had to be authentic, it had to be real, and he said he even started double-guessing himself, you know, did I hear something and just kind of turn it into this? But, you know, he didn't. He came up with it all by himself. Hmm. Bill Buell is uh, with us, feature writer for the Daily Gazette, author of uh, history books, historic Schenectady County, historic Albany uh, City and uh, uh, County, I believe. Is those, am I correct? Are those the titles? of your... the, um, Let's see, Historic Schenectady County, uh, that was uh, came out in 2009, the bicentennial of the county being formed, being broken away from uh, Albany County. And the Albany book is also, it's mostly about the uh, rural Albany County. Uh, it's not so much to do with the city, but I do mention the city a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you've also, uh, in addition to your a career at the paper, where you started in sports, as I recall, right? I did. I was a sports writer for 20 years, I guess. Mm. And then now doing more of the, the features and, and dry entertainment um, stories. Uh, but you also have, I guess, on the side, worked for the uh, the Schenectady City in, in terms of being uh, at their history center or something like that? I volunteer at the uh, County Historical Society. Uh which is in the uh, Stockade uh, neighborhood. On Saturdays from 10 until 2, my good friend Carol Lewis and I are there. She's in the library. I'm in the museum. We're both volunteers. We, we give four hours a week so that the place is open on Saturday, you know, for people maybe who work during the day, during the week. And that's the an sk- opportunity to come in and check their family genealogy, local history, check out the museum, that sort of thing. The Schenectady County Historical Society. Right. And the place you're at, is their facility in the Stockade? It's at um, 32 Washington Avenue in the Stockade. And as you mentioned, they also have uh, this historic uh, farm uh, land, uh, the yeah, Maybe Farm. Yeah, the Maybe farm. farm in Rotterdam Junction out on Route 5, or maybe I should say 5S, I think it is. Yeah, it's 5S, yeah. Right on the Mohawk River. It's a wonderful place. It's got 
uh, uh, well, it's reputed to be the oldest house in the Mohawk Valley. I don't know. You may dispute that yourself, but it's 1705, somewhere around there. And then we have a big barn and then a new education center. So there's quite a lot to see out there. I mean, the Historical Society is quite active. Didn't they get a, a, a big endowment or something of that nature? Uh, that was quite a while ago. Uh, but, they, yeah, they do get a lot of money from people um, who unfortunately pass away. But uh, they've had a couple of big donors in the past um, whose names escape yeah. now. But, yeah, they do have quite an endowment. And when you're working uh, as a volunteer at uh, the uh, museum and also a library there uh, in, in the stockade, what do people uh, come and ask about uh, typically? Well, if they come into the museum, uh, which is my domain, I, I show them some of our... Uh, historic paintings, furniture, artifacts. We have um, some wonderful personalities from the 19th century. Joseph Yates, our um, only Canadian to become governor of New York. He's uh, sandwiched in between the second and third term of DeWitt Clinton, mm-hmm. right around the time of the uh, building of the Erie Canal. There's John Isaac de Graff, who was the first mayor to be elected by popular vote in the city of Schenectady. That would have been somewhere around 1840. He's also a U.S. congressman and served as mayor for four years. Uh, We have wonderful portraits of those uh, two gentlemen. We have a portrait, um, an image, I should say, of the Schenectady Massacre painted by Samuel Sexton just before the Civil War. No, before the massacre, of course, was February 8, 1690. Right, that goes back to the 1600s. I mean, our area does have a long history. Schenectady is founded in 1661, 62, 62, and right across the river in 1658, Alexander Lindsay Glenn settles there. So it was some guy in Scotia who uh, got the ball rolling as far right. as, uh, you know, going west away from Albany. But uh, Schenectady really was the frontier, uh, the last post of outpost of civilization, uh, they used to say. Yeah. Well, you know, and I haven't given her a plug in a while, but um, uh, my friend and uh, colleague over the years, uh, Maria Ricky O'Brice, has a fairly newly produced or uh, I think there's some story attached to why she did this now, but mm-hmm. she wrote uh, um, a musical about the burning of Schenectady, which sounds you know, different, uh, called Hearts of Fire. Hearts of Fire, yeah, it was yeah. a wonderful, uh, she did a wonderful job. I, I didn't see an actual stage production, but two or three years ago they, um, um, they showed the uh, video version at yeah. uh, Proctor's, and it was really, it really came across well. I really enjoyed it. Some great music that Maria wrote. And uh, she's now uh, got the CD for sale. I right. know I've, yeah. I've seen it at Proctor's gift shop. Yeah, unfortunately our city, uh, our county didn't do a lot with uh, the uh, 200, what would have been, what is the 225th anniversary of the Schenectady Massacre this year. Um so uh, Maria did come up with some CDs. I mean, I hope she's selling a lot because they re- they really are wonderful. It's great music. Um, but we didn't uh, we didn't have any special commemoration uh, marking the occasion. Hopefully, we'll do it sometime later in the year, maybe. Mm. And I, you know, again, we talked with uh, Maria on the historians about this, 
And I'm going to say interestingly or oddly, it was connected to her uh, late father, a man named Peter Riccio, who was just so interested in history. And as she was writing it, she was, uh, you know, showing him parts of it being uh, being developed. And she finished it before he died, but he passed away before he could see it, I believe. But, yeah, she she uh, was a busy uh, piano player, actor uh, in England for a while, because um, she I believe that's where she met her husband, and they spent some time over there, and then they ended up moving back uh, to right. Amsterdam. But she's a talented lady. You should uh, have you ever heard her play the piano? She can. Oh yes, <laughs> I've, yeah, I've heard her quite a lot. Because you know, she, in addition to Hearts of Fire, she also did the Oratorio Amsterdam. Oh, right. And you know, I've heard her play many, uh, you know, a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. She's great. She she's the piano woman, I guess we'd say. And she's married to the fine city historian. Up That's there. that is true, uh, Robert von Hasselen, and she right. was married. Well, Bill Buell, uh, we're sort of ending this like page six of the Post here. We're talking <laughs> about people's uh, marriages and so on and so forth. But I uh, thank you for uh, joining us. I'll be looking for the book on George Lunn and uh, reading you in the Daily Gazette. Bill Buell is a feature writer for the Daily Gazette newspaper uh, based in Schenectady and uh, author of history books on Schenectady and Albany, uh, primarily Albany uh, County, and working on a new book on Schenectady's socialist mayor, George Lund. Thank you, Bill. Have a good day. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. The historians on the uh, online and also on RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled.